want you to take your Bibles, turn to Psalm 119 as you're turning there. Another special thank you. We have some friends, uh, Brian and Deanna Johnson here on the second row. They met in our singles class. My wife and I have been teaching the singles ministry at Lancaster Baptist for 23 years. And about 19 years ago, they got married out of our class. And so they live not too far from here. And so we have to spend a little time with them and their oldest son, David, graduating uh, this weekend from high school. And, and so glad that you guys got to be a part of the service tonight as well. Psalm 119, as I mentioned yesterday, this psalm really deals and emphasizes the Word of God. It's just throughout. There's eight different synonyms for the Word of God in this chapter from laws and statutes and precepts and testimonies and, and, and different words along that line. And the psalmist here has emphasized the importance, the value, the necessity of the Word of God. And tonight, I want to just read one verse to sort of help us frame our discussion tonight. Psalm 119, verse number 89. Psalm 119, a familiar passage of Scripture. In fact, it was just alluded to in the song that uh, the quartet just sang. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord... Thy word is settled in heaven. Amen. From God's perspective, the question of the word of God is settled. And tonight, we want to help settle it from our perspective. God says it's already settled. And so tonight, I, I want to challenge us with this thought about having a trusted translation. A trusted translation, something we can trust. You ever gotten information and not trusted it? Uh, we were spending the first night uh, at the uh, apartment uh, down at the school property, and uh, Brother Andrew had told us that uh, there's no windows in the, room, the bedrooms. It's really, really dark. And Okay, well, we're used to that. It'd be, it'd be fine. We've driven 21 and a half hours to get here. It doesn't matter anyway. We're going to sleep, even if there's a fluorescent lights shining in our eyes. And so we're, we're getting in there and, and getting, uh, getting set up for the evening, and, and we crashed. And then some of our kids were getting ready to get up in the next morning, and they were looking at their, their watches and their phones, and it said, uh, you know, a certain time in the morning, and, and they didn't believe it. They didn't trust it, because when they looked and when they observed and what they saw with their eyes, it just felt like that was, that was not the right time, so they went back to sleep for a few more hours. <laughs> they didn't trust it. Sometimes, as we're traveling across country and driving from state to state to state to state, often I, I look at the, the map that's in front of me, and I wonder, can I trust it? Will it really get me to where I need to go? Tonight, we have a guide, the Word of God, Amen. and we can trust it. And I want to talk about that this evening. And in the notes, I, I've tried to have Pastor Andrew give you just about everything that's in my notes. I'm leaving with you because I'm getting on the road this evening, and I'm, I'm, I'm driving farther. And so when I'm gone, if you have any questions, I'm leaving all these notes here, and, and Pastor Andrew is going to answer all the questions you have. So... <laughs> He sat in my classes. He already knows all the answers. And so he'll be ready for that. But I do want you to have a, a good amount of information tonight as well. It may look like a lot of information. We will move quickly, but I did want to have that in your hands. When we think about the idea of the Word of God, how did we get it? By way of introduction, we use the word inspiration. It's a New Testament word. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable. It's all profitable. All of it. The genealogy is profitable. Uh, the dietary laws from Leviticus, profitable. It's all profitable. Uh, it's able to help us be equipped to do every good work God has called us to do. And we talk about this word inspiration, which literally means God breathe. God has breathed out 
His words and He's breathed them into a book so that what we hold in our hands are literally the very words of God. We call this inspiration. And really, most people in Christianity aren't questioning the concept of inspiration. In fact, Peter, when he writes his second epistle, says that holy men of God, holy men, not just any average man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost took holy men, and the end result of that was holy scriptures. It's holiness throughout the whole process. What we have is a, a holy book. That means it's sacred. There's something reverential about it. It's not just a book we throw up in our, our dash and ride around from week to week. There, there's a sacredness to it because it is literally the Word of God. And as a result of this being the Word of God, there's a practical truth that comes from that. It's our final authority. I don't need another authority. Amen. I want to know what does the Bible say. There's no higher court of appeal than that. What does the Bible say? And we see this illustrated in the New Testament. Paul, writing in the book of Romans, chapter number 4, he's talking about the concept of justification. And he's, he's posing different questions people may ask. And then he says this, what saith the scripture? What's the Bible say? Because that's going to solve all of our questions. As Baptists, we believe the Bible is our final authority for matters of faith and practice. So we teach our kids a little song, the B-I-B-L-E. Remember that song? We never really outgrow it. Now that I know Pastor Andrew sings, I may have him come up and just sing it in a moment. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I do what? I stand how? Alone. That's all I need. I stand alone on the Word of God. I don't stand on this book and this book and this book. and this. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. You say, well, that's a children's song, but it's got a great truth. The Bible is our final authority for matters of faith and practice because God gave it to us. God's Word came down to man, and you and I, who did not witness the miracles of Jesus firsthand, get to read about it in a living book. When I was in high school, I had to read some, in my, some books in my literature class that I had the typical high school question, why? <laughs> why, am, why am I reading this? How am I ever going to use this again? Maybe your students or your kids have asked that question. Why am I reading this? Why am I ever going to have to? How will I ever use this again? And sometimes I would read some of those ancient literature books, those ancient literature stories. One of them I had to read in my 10th grade class was Beowulf. Beowulf. I think it scarred me for life. Beowulf. When I read that book, it didn't read like it was written the day before. It had a very ancient feel to it. It was clunky. It didn't read smoothly to me. It's like, good night. This is killing. This is torture. They shouldn't allow this here in the state of Georgia. We should get this out of the state. And, and I just felt like it just didn't, it wasn't fresh. But this morning when I read the book of Leviticus, I was reading things that were 3,500 to 4,000 years old. But I didn't feel that. Because the Word of God is alive. It's quick. It's powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even the dividing asunder of our, our soul and spirit. It's the Word of God. So most questions don't arise about inspiration or about the power of Scripture. A lot of questions come up when we deal with the concept of preservation. Which Bible do we use? If you walk into a Christian bookstore at a mall or something like that, and, and you go to their Bible section, there's, there's hundreds of different Bibles to choose from and different colors. Sometimes I wonder, what would it be like if we could bring, back, bring to our day a Christian from the first century and show them all the Bibles we have? 
when the average Christian in the first century did not have their own copy. It was housed in the church. And there was no guarantee they had all of the New Testament letters. They would just sort of copy them as they came through. And, and it was just a whole different world. Today we have, you know, Bibles with camouflage covers and Bibles with pink covers. And we have Bibles and cartoon images. We have Bibles and you name it. We have it all. And yet, in the middle of all of that, we need an authority. There are some practical reasons why we think about having one Bible. <laughs> uh, sometimes we do something like public reading. Can you imagine what is it like when everybody's reading from a different translation? We call that confusion. Corporate reading is a, a great reason to have a, 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 a standard, if you will. How about Bible memory? We teach our kids to memorize scripture. What's nice is they're all memorizing the same thing. So we have a standard. I think about just corporate worship. When we're all singing songs that allude to scriptures or we're hearing uh, maybe phrases from the scriptures, if, if we all have the same point of reference, it helps us to connect. I, I think about just the connection to our heritage. I've mentioned over the weekend my dad's a pastor. My granddad was a pastor as well. My great-granddad was a pastor as well. And when I think about the, the Bible that I read tonight in my King James Bible, I'm reading the same words that my dad and my granddad and my great-granddad have all preached from. It hasn't changed. When I go to a church and we sing the hymns, I'm singing the same hymns that generations of Christians have sung before me. There's a connection to the heritage I don't want to lose that. And those are just practical reasons to think about a standard. But tonight, as we get into our lesson tonight and our, our, our topic of trusted translation, I want to give us more than just practical reasons. I, I want to give us some, some information to think about that I hope will be a help. But to do that, I need to give you a few caveats. I need to help you understand where I'm coming from. My view of preservation can be summarized pretty much as follows. Whatever someone says about the preservation of scriptures or the translation in English, whatever we say about that, to me, where I'm coming from, that argument should work before 1611. I just need you to know that. Not everybody who ends up in the same Bible I teach from and preach from gets there the same way. And I respect that, understand that, but you need to know where I'm coming from so you understand uh, sort of some of the reasons I'll say what I'll say. Uh, to me, God's word did not just pop up into existence in 1611 because God promised to keep it in every generation. Not just from 1611 on, but even before 1611, Bible-believing Christians had access to the Word of God. Secondly, and I alluded to this yesterday, I believe that the church is the pillar and ground of truth. So I believe that God has deposited the Word of God to His church, the church by which He's made a promise that the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Therefore... When I study church history, and specifically Baptist history, when I look at those people and I look at the Bible that they used, what I see is a kinship with the Bible that I'm using tonight. God's words, here's a third statement, just from my point of view, is I hold the fact that God's word was pure the moment it was inspired. That it didn't have to be purified in order to be right. In other words, when David wrote Psalm 12, he didn't have to write it seven times until he got it right. Uh, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he didn't write it seven times until he got it. was the Word of God the first time. God got it right the first time. And so as I think through these, the validity of a translation then, humanly speaking, I'm not outside of the, the doctrine of preservation from God's perspective, but just humanly speaking, the validity of a translation is tied to the text in which it was taken from and the technique in which it was used. And I'll talk about that even tonight. 
Finally, by way of introduction, I want to say that I believe that preservation is a Bible doctrine. I read a book years ago, and they wanted to make preservation an academic discussion. But the word doctrine simply means teaching. And if the Bible teaches that God will preserve his word, then it becomes a Bible doctrine. And God does teach that he would preserve his word for every generation. So I believe in the doctrine, not just my preference, but the doctrine of preservation. So in your notes, I have for you some preliminary considerations. Uh, First off, the Old and New Testament were not designed to be read only by society's elite. The Bible says in Mark 12, 37, that the common people heard Jesus gladly. I like that. Uh, Because I'm a common person. And I'm glad that the common people weren't excluded from Jesus, but they flocked to him. And the common people heard him gladly. And the language in which the Bible was given was directed at the common people. It wasn't just high-educated language that only the elite could understand. God wrote it in such a way that even a child could understand his truth. The Old Testament was not designed just for the elite people. When I think about the people God used in the New Testament, Peter and John specifically, the Bible says they were ignorant men. (laughs) I used to make that my life verse. When I was in high school, honestly, I'd never heard of Christian colleges. Sometimes I say that and people don't don't believe that because I work in Christian college work now. But uh, the the circles that I grew up in and the small country churches that I grew up around, we never heard of a Christian college. I didn't know they existed. When I was in 11th grade, I surrendered to preach. In my 10th grade year, my parents moved me from a, a public school to a Christian school for my final two years. I started getting around preaching and chapels and Bible classes. As a result of that, God worked in my heart, and I felt God calling me to preach. And so I I began to share that with my teachers there, and and one of them said, so since God has called you to preach, are you going to go study at college for that? And I honestly, I thought he was talking about University of Georgia. And so I said, that's great. I was going to go to Georgia Tech, but if University of Georgia has a plan to help me be a better preacher, I'm I'm off. And he just looked at me with this dumb look on his face like, what are you talking about, Mike? I said, well, college. He said, they actually have Bible colleges that help people understand the Bible. I said, you're kidding me. I'd never heard of it. I grew up in a preacher's home, and I'd never heard of that. And so as I began to think about Peter and John, when he began to talk to me about going to Bible college, I said, I don't want want that. The Bible says God used ignorant people. (laughs) And so that's my lifer. And he looked at me and said, okay, Mike, that's true. God uses ignorant people. But who wrote most of the New Testament? Paul. Was he ignorant? No. No. All right, Mike, if you'll give God something to work with, he'll use you in a greater way. I said, all right, you got me. And so I went to Bible college, and that's where I met my wife. And then we moved out to California and and, uh, just enjoying the journey. Uh, And we think about this, God uses common people. I also want to say by way of introduction that also when God speaks in a language, often in the Bible, you'll see what God said in one language recorded in another language, and it's still the word of God. Give an example. This morning, do you remember what was up here? What do we have up here? Scrolls. What language was it? Hebrew. How many of you read it? (laughs) That letter looks the same as that letter. Look at that box. Check the box. No, it says don't touch. Most of us did not have our, our morning devotions this morning in Hebrew. How many of you read this morning your Bible in Greek? Probably not. When the New Testament was written in Greek and they quoted as it is written, what they did was they took a Hebrew passage and they wrote it in Greek and it was still the word of God. In the book of Acts, Paul stands up on a porch and on the stairs and he he gives his defense in the Hebrew tongue. That's what it says. That's what Luke says. And he gave it in the Hebrew tongue, but Luke wrote it in Greek and it was the word of God. 
when the Word of God is translated from one language to another, it doesn't become inferior. It's the Word of God in any language. So this isn't just a copy of God's Word. It is God's Word translated for me in English so that I can read it. I think about the fact that we look at what Jesus has given to us and we need to be grateful. So with that in mind, sort of getting that out of the way, let me give you some necessary ingredients for a trusted translation. Three simple thoughts that I believe will help us tonight in a way that I hope uh, will, will not be soon forgotten. First of all, we have to look at the manuscripts that were translated. Now, I've only given you three blanks tonight, so it should be really, really easy. Uh, and if you miss a blank, I'll even make it up to you after the service. The manuscripts that were translated. And sometimes when you hear the word manuscript, that sounds like a big word, a fancy word. It really isn't. Uh, the word's a compound word, manu, which is the idea of, of hand, and script, which is the idea of writing. So it's handwritten. When you looked up this morning and you saw the, the turkey feathers and you saw the Arabic gum and you saw the different nuts that were there and all the ink, it was so a scribe could write it by hand. Manuscripted. None of us tonight have a handwritten Bible. Most of us, if we were called upon to write the Bible by hand, no one would be able to read it. You ever notice how we don't write as much today as we used to? We type, we text, uh, uh, we, we dictate. Uh, and so sometimes our, our handwriting isn't as well as it, uh, maybe it should be. And, and the scribes and these people that wrote it by hand wrote it. And we saw this morning the consistency from 400 years, 500 years, 600 years. They looked identical. The idea here of a handwritten copy. You have these manuscripts. And I mentioned yesterday that just in the New Testament... Just in the Greek language, we have nearly 6,000 manuscripts. I want that to sink in for just a moment. 6,000 manuscripts. Now, I don't have the finances or the time to do my morning devotions by flying across the world to visit all of those manuscripts. That would take way too long. I need it in one place. So what happened over time that the manuscripts began to be grouped by similarities and these groupings became called text. Text. And I alluded to that yesterday as well. When these texts were compiled and put together, they became the source for translations. Okay? So let's break this down. I have a scribe back here. I have Paul back here. I have, a, I have someone who's maybe working in what's called a scriptorium where somebody's standing here and 10 or so people are copying it down. And, and so I, I've got this manuscripts. And, and all of these get collected and compiled and put together. And then all of a sudden now I, I, have, I have a text. It's one, all of those manuscript evidences in one place, but it's all in a different language. So then translators come to this text, and from that text, they have a translation. Now, the validity of the translation is only as good as the source, right? So if the source is bad, it doesn't matter the scholarship involved over here, because if you start with a bad source, you get a bad translation, so we've got to question ourselves with this thought, where does it come from? What's the history behind it? How did God get his word to us? Did it just pop up in 1611 and all of a sudden now we have it? Did it just pop in the 1800s? Or has God's people had God's word all along? When we think about a trusted translation, we want to group this together in a way that shows us God has been in control of his word since the beginning. So there's texts that become the basis for translations. Now, today, primarily, two texts. So next time you go into a Christian bookstore and you look at all of these translations, in the back of your mind, think about this. They come from one of two sources. One of two sources. 
They may have different flavorings. They may have different turns of phrases. But at the bottom level, they come from either the text that the King James comes from or they come from another text. And it may come from another text, and they may be some great people who translate it, but if it comes from a text that has not been used by the churches, it's not going to have the same level of authority as that which God has preserved. So we think about this idea of who do we trust. When you think about these two texts, there's so many different names people throw out. And sometimes it becomes even confusing all the terms. Sometimes the text that the King James comes from is called the received text. Sometimes it's called the Texas Receptus, which means received text. Uh, Sometimes it's called the Antiochian text because it's rooted out of Antioch, there where they were first called Christians. Sometimes it's called the Byzantine text because the Byzantine Empire, where all of these manuscripts were found. Sometimes it's simply called the majority text because there's just so many manuscripts that agree that uh, they, they just call it the majority. A lot of different names there. What is it compared against? Well, it's compared against what's called the critical text. The critical text has as an assumption... An assumption that we've never had the Word of God correct, so we need to restore it. Okay? That's a bold statement. The underpinnings of the critical text is we've never had it right yet, but if we keep searching for more and more manuscripts, we can get it right and we can restore the Bible back to its purity. So either we have a preserved Bible or we have a restored Bible. Either God is the one in charge of this and he's preserving his word for every generation or God has stepped out of the picture and he hopes man can set the thing back right again. I would rather take God at his promises than the best abilities man has to offer. So sometimes this critical text is called the Nestle's Allen text. It's now in its 28th or 29th edition. Two men from Germany, uh, Mr. Nessels, Mr. Allen, uh, and they, they put together edition after edition after edition. So why do they keep changing? Because they keep finding more manuscripts. And as this manuscript is found in this manuscript, maybe we can tweak this here. It's never a finished product because the goal is to restore the Bible. That's the founding assumption. I've got to restore it back. Sometimes it's called the United Bible Society text, UBS, and I think now it's in its fifth edition. Sometimes it's called the Alexandrian text because the, the minority of manuscripts are rooted in Alexandria, Egypt because it's got great climate, and so those manuscripts were older. I have a chart in your notes that I want you to take a moment and look at. You'll see majority on the left-hand side and minority on the right-hand side, and sort of a, a way to try to understand these two ter- terms. The majority manuscript, the Byzantine, the, the, the source text from where we get our Bible is closer to the location where the New Testament was written. What does that mean? Okay. In the back of your Bible, you have an uninspired section. It's called the maps. It's not inspired. God did not breathe the maps. But they're helpful. Now, sometimes I wonder if Christians know there's maps even in the Bible. Did we get that far? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if we get that far anymore. Uh, or we carry a lot of digital Bibles, so the maps are no longer a part of it. But in the back of our, if you have a printed Bible, nine out of ten Bibles are going to have a map in the back. And you're going to see Jerusalem in the time of Christ, Galilee in the time of Christ. And, and you can see the journeys of the Apostle Paul and, and a lot of different maps like that. And when you start to look at the journeys of the Apostle Paul on a map, what you'll see is a region. You'll see Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth and Ephesus. And you'll see the region of Galatia and you'll see Antioch. And basically, if you were to look at a map, you've got the Mediterranean Sea in the middle... 
You've got Africa to the south. You've got Europe and Asia Minor to the north. The place where the missionary movement went and where the Bible writing went was to the north of Jerusalem. Let's think through this. How many have ever read First and Second Alexandria? No, we haven't read that because there's no letter written to Egypt, right? The letters went north, and they went specifically north-northwest as they went across that region there. So the manuscripts that make up our Bible are found closer in the location. That's, that's a strength. Because when you have a copy, or the original comes to a place, and then you make copies of that, when you're close to the location where they're located, it's sort of hard to make changes. When you make a copy, and then you go 100 miles away, and you make any changes, you're not as easy to compare it to the original, because of the way of travel in that day, there, there was no FaceTime, Right? Nobody said, hey, let me FaceTime the Apostle Paul real quick. You're in prison. I want to just compare my Romans to your Romans. That didn't happen. So in Alexandria, what you had is a shorter manuscript, has less verses, has less pages. Many times things that deal with the deity of Christ are not found where we normally look for them, or the Trinity not found where we normally look for them. It's a shorter text. And, and no one was close enough to compare that to the original because it was distance there. But the Byzantine family, the family from our Bible... The location was closer. Compared to the minority, it's closer in date. So here's a fact. The manuscripts that support the newer Bibles are, are older. I have to say that. I can't change the narrative because I don't like that. That's the truth. There's older manuscripts. I can't debate the fact. I can ask about the interpretation of it, though. Why is it older? Yesterday I was telling uh, the group that uh, met with me yesterday... I graduated from high school in 1990. When I walked across the platform, they, they had a, a box, and inside the box there was a Bible there. And that Bible uh, was my graduation Bible, and here's the deal. It had my full name on it. Now, Michael is not my first name. It's my middle name. In fact, I thought growing up everybody went by their middle name because that's the way my sisters were. And, and so it's like I thought everybody went by their middle name. I thought the first name was just, you know, formality, I, I, you know. So I don't go by my first name. I go by my middle name. And so I, I don't broadcast my, my first name. My, my neighbor calls me by my first name because he can't remember my other name. He's a realtor. He doesn't want to ask me my name again. So he went and found the legal documents for the paper I signed for the house, and he calls me by my first name. And the kids are like, why does he call you that? Just, I'm just glad he tries, right? Uh, and so I don't use that Bible because I don't want it sitting out and everybody looking at my full name. Nobody calls me that. If anybody calls me by my first name, I just that's a telemarketer, right? And so I don't, even, I don't even take that call. So because of that, that Bible since 1990 has stayed in a box. If I take it out of the box and I put it up to your face, it smells like brand new leather. If I open it right here in front of this microphone, you hear the binding pop like a new Bible. The pages don't turn as easy. It's like you're just trying to you know, open a, from a new Bible. You know that feel of those pages, trying to break them in. It's not been broken. It looks, watch, it looks newer than this Bible. It's in much better condition. This Bible looks older than that Bible because I use it. 
There's pages that are coming out in the back. There's pages that are coming out this morning as I was preaching. I noticed a page that was wanting to be raptured out of my Bible. The Bible's been used a lot more than that one I received in 1990. This is about six years old, seven years old, something like that. The other one is, what is that, 27 or 20, 29 years old, I guess. And it looks brand new. Why? Because it's never been used. Older manuscripts many times are older because the local churches did not see value in using them. They just put it on a shelf. And as a result of being on a shelf in a dry climate, it just lasted. But the Christians who used the Word of God, those were wearing out, new copies being made, those were wearing out, new copies being made. So while we may have more abundant manuscripts that favor the King James, they're not as old because of the reasons I've just given. The manuscripts for the majority side were distributed widely. The ones in Egypt, very, very local. This one that supports our Bible was used and recognized by churches, not just English churches, French churches, German churches, Spanish churches, Italian churches, Portuguese churches, uh, old Latin churches, Gothic churches. This body of manuscripts has supported the church at large since the beginning of the New Testament church. It's a longer text and one's shorter. One's newer manuscripts, one's older. One has a long history of use and one's been used about 150 years. One starts with the assumption that God preserves his word one starts with the assumption that man needs to restore it. That's a good overview. So, so when I'm thinking about a trusted translation, the first question I look at, what manuscripts is it from? Because that's going to tell me a lot right there. Second question, what message does it convey? What message does it convey? What does the text tell me about Jesus? What does the text tell me about God? Does it support the Trinity? Is the text accurate? If it's not... If I find errors in a Bible translation, that's a problem for me. Because God can't lie. I want a Bible that I can trust, a trusted translation. So I look at the message that's there. I have a, a reference, if you will, a chart there that shows four different Bible verses in your notes. And I'm using the King James on the left, and I'm comparing it to the English Standard Version. It's a pretty popular Bible today. It's popular among many that would uh, maybe favor uh, Calvinism or, or things along those lines. It's, it's, just, it's a very popular Bible that many people are buying today. So it's not just, just run-of-the-mill, pick one that I know uh, that I can stack up against well. It's, just, it's a common Bible. That's why I've used it. I want you to look at the very first reference there, 1 John 5, 7. This is a great verse that's a great defense of the Trinity. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That's pretty clear. Look at what the ESV says. There are three that testify. We're missing something. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. It's not there. I might find it in a footnote, but it's not in the text. Why is it not in the text? Is it because the ESV translators are anti-Trinity? No, because the text that it translates from doesn't have it. And if the text doesn't have it, they can't manufacture it. I could go into more detail. 225 A.D., a Latin father by the name of Cyprian quotes 1 John 5, 7 when he's writing to his churches, and he quotes 1 John 5, 7. That's actually older than the manuscripts that the New Bibles are based on. Just interesting to me. John 7, verse 8. There's a little word here that's bolded in your notes. It's the word yet. Jesus tells his disciples to go up to the feast, and then he tells them, I'm not going up yet. I'm not going up right now. I'm not going up yet. 
Uh, my time isn't yet come, so I'm not going up right now. I'm not going up yet. And then a few verses later, he goes. No problem. That word yet is a great tool for parents. Hey, can we do this? Not yet. Not right now. Sometimes what that means is, I hope you forget and don't ask me again, right? Not yet. But if Jesus says, I'm not going up yet, and then he goes, he hasn't lied. He's just waited till the right time. But notice what happens in the ESV. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast. And a few verses later, he goes. That's an untrue statement then. If Jesus says, I'm not going to the feast, and you look up and there he is, like, wait a minute, you told me you weren't going. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. He can't lie. But in the modern Bibles from the critical text sources, Jesus isn't being honest here. That's a problem for me. Look at Matthew chapter number 1 there in your notes because these are those genealogies that sometimes we want to read quickly. Uh, how many of you have ever been tempted when you're reading through the Chronicles and so-and-so begot so-and-so and everybody begot somebody else? Next chapter, right? You get through those names, it's like, good night. These names, are they're not even popular today. Nobody uses Why do I have to read them? But all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable, all of it, even those genealogies. Look at Matthew chapter number 1 there in your notes. And Solomon begot Reboam, Reboam begot Abiah, and Abiah begot Asa, and then Ezekiel or Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon. You read that in the ESV, you'll find that Abijah, he had Asaph. Asaph, the problem with that, he was a Levitical priest. What tribe was Jesus from? He's the lion from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. You can't have the Levite in a Jewish, in a Judean line. That's the wrong man. That, that's an error. Here's another one. And Manasseh was the father of Amos. Well, he's an Israelite prophet, not a Judean prophet. He's an Israelite prophet from Tekoa. He's not in the genealogy of Jesus either. You have an error. When man tries to restore what God has already preserved, he doesn't make it better. He introduces problems. Look at Revelation 8.13. I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Then the ESV, I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Whoa, whoa, whoa. An angel gets transformed into an eagle. Those aren't the same thing. Now, I'm not against eagles talking. God made a donkey talk in the Old Testament. So I'm not saying an eagle couldn't say, whoa, whoa, whoa. God has the ability to let, a let animals talk. Here's what's interesting, though. If you cross-reference that to Revelation 14, verse 6, both translations will say something like this. And I saw another angel flying through the midst of heaven. When you read the King James and you come to Revelation 8 and you see an angel in the middle of heaven, and then you come to chapter 14 and you see another angel in the middle of heaven, no big deal. It's just consistent. When you're reading the ESV and you, you see an eagle in the midst of heaven, and a few chapters later there's another angel, you start scratching your head and say, where was the first one? He doesn't exist. It's an error. When man gets into it, man doesn't make it better. Man introduces problems. As Bible-believing Christians, we have to start with the premise that God preserves His Word. Not that it was lost and needed to be restored. So I think about the message. What does it say about Jesus? What is, it, is it truthful? Is it accurate? Or does it introduce problems with facts of history? 
I give you a final thought this, morning, this evening. The method that was used. How do these translators work? What's their philosophy? Yesterday, uh, Brother Andrew alluded to two technical terms in your notes here tonight as well. Formal equivalency and dynamic equivalency. Formal equivalency is when we try to, to translate one word from one language into another language. The best we can do, we're saying, here's this word, and it matches up with this word, and we try to make the syntax all match, and we try to put that into a new language. Dynamic equivalency, you read a sentence or a paragraph, and you put it in your own words, and you translate the thoughts. You paraphrase. Whenever I read the Bible, Old and New Testament alike, God puts the emphasis on words, not thoughts. God preserves the words. The words of the Lord are pure words. Uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. Not thoughts, but words. So, so when, when God gives the words, then in my language, I want the words. I don't want someone's summary of it. I don't want the cliff notes. I don't want man's interpretation. I want a translation. I give an example here because Spanish is pretty popular in uh, California uh, and the city of Lancaster. I think 49 or 50% of the, the people that live there would be Hispanic in their culture. Uh, and so it's something we, we, we use often when we're out door knocking. This, there's a sentence here in your notes. Uh, basically, it's a simple sentence. God hates sin. Dios odia el pecado. God hates sin. That's a formal, formal translation of that. I have a good friend that's now in heaven. He was preaching in uh, uh, Costa Rica one day. And he had made this sentence, God hates sin. He said it in English, and the pastor there was going to translate for him. It doesn't take very long to say God hates sin in English. It doesn't take that long to say it in Spanish either. After a while, though, the translator decided he needed to help the preacher. And so he was saying things, God hates marijuana, God hates Facebook, God hates abortion, God hates gossip, God hates smoking, God hates drinking. He just had this whole list of things. Technically, that may have been true, but it wasn't what the preacher said. I don't want dynamic equivalency where someone gives me their interpretation, because I can't trust their interpretation. Their interpretation isn't infallible, but the words of God are. I want the words. The statements here are a good example. Now, there's a, there's a Bible today that's on the market. It's called The Message. It's on the back page of your notes. These, I'm not making this up. These, these are taken right from the message. I have the Bible on my laptop, and so I, I just cut and pasted from these verses right here. This is an example of dynamic equivalency, and I'm using some verses I believe you'd already be familiar with. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. It's your reasonable service. We, we've heard that verse often. Notice what it says in the message. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. That doesn't look like Romans 12 to me. Why is that? Well, because the method they are using is, hey, let me just tell you what I think this means, and let me put this into my own words. Look, I don't want your words. I want his. 
Because His are inerrant and His are infallible. And His and His alone are what I stand upon. The B-I-B-L-E. Zechariah 13.6 is a great prophetic verse. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? And he'll answer, Those which I was wounded in the house of my friends. It's a great prophetic verse about Jesus receiving the wounds in the house of his friends for our sins. Notice how that's lost in the message. And if someone says, So where did you get that black eye? They'll say, I ran into a door at a friend's house. That's not prophetic. That's clumsy. <laughs> and that doesn't even qualify to be called the Word of God. Because that's not what God said. That's what someone has interpreted. That's what someone has manufactured. That's what someone has created. But when it's man's Word, it doesn't have the power and authority that God's Word has. So I think about this idea of a trusted translation. I want to know, what manuscripts is it from? What, what's the source? Where did it come from? I, I want to ask myself this question as well. What message does it convey? Is it true? Is it accurate? Does it protect the deity of Christ? Does it protect the doctrine of the Trinity? And then I want to know what method did they use? Do you know it's possible to use the right manuscripts and use the wrong method? Martin Luther did this, in my opinion. When he was translating the Bible into the German language, when he came to the Psalms... He wanted the Psalms to rhyme in German. That was his goal. He said, these are, these are poetic. I'll make them rhyme in German. So he took a lot of liberty with the text to make it rhyme. He had the right manuscripts, but I don't believe he used the right method. It's also possible to have the wrong manuscripts and use the right method. The ESV uses the right method. I'll say that. The ESV uses the right method. It just uses the wrong manuscripts. So as a result of that, it will always be inferior because it's from a source that Bible-believing churches throughout history have rejected. When we use the King James Bible tonight, we're standing on the backs of some great Christians. We're standing in a line of people that regardless of languages, whether it's the French Olivetan Bible, whether it's the Italian Diodati Bible, whether it's the Spanish Reina or Reina Valera Bibles, these were all from the same text. In the 1500s, the Catholic Church sort of lost their hold over the masses. And God began to send a revival. And it wasn't just a revival of preaching. It was a revival of the Word of God. And all of a sudden, the Word of God began to be translated and put into the hands of common people. Again. And common people began to read the Bible. And they went out and became evangelists and preachers and missionaries. And they began to tell their friends about Jesus. And, and what came out of that was the Protestant Reformation. But what I want you to think about is, out of all of those European languages, they all had one source. The same source our King James Bible comes from. The Olivetan Bible I mentioned a moment ago is interesting history behind it. I forget now the guy's name who translated it. I only remember his nickname. He had come across some Waldensian Christians. The Waldensians today are nowhere near like they were pre-Protestant Reformation. Before the Protestant Reformation, before the Reformers messed them up with some doctrinal issues, before that, the Waldensians were great evangelistic people. And they, they traveled the hillsides far and wide preaching Christ. 
when the reformers said, we want to teach you some doctrines that you haven't been exposed to in your isolation, they said, we also would like to give you something as well. They had an old Latin Bible. We'd like you to stay this primitive Bible that we've had for many, many decades and centuries, and we'd like to have your language have a copy of this as well. And so a guy began to work all night long using olive oil in the cave, and he earned the nickname Olivetan. And Olivetan began to translate that old Latin Bible, that old Waldensian Bible, into French language. There's a a part of the King James Bible... Not every Bible prints it today, but it's called the Translators to the Readers. My Bible has it. It's an interesting history there. As you read it, they talk about how they not only looked at the Greek manuscripts, the Hebrew manuscripts, and the previous English languages, they also looked at all these other languages that were from the same source. That French Olivetan Bible is a Bible that traces its history all the way back to 150 A.D. with that primitive church. And that's in the lineage of our King James Bible. God wants us to trust his word, not doubt it. I'll say this as well. It's important that we have the right word of God in our hands. It's even more important that we have it in our hearts. Many times I I, I see Christians argue about Bible translations, and they do so with such a mean spirit that I wonder do they even read it. Remember this morning we put on, we accessorize the new man with kindness and meekness and humility. So it's one thing to have in our hands. It's quite another thing to have it in our hearts. When we think about the King James Bible, it's a Bible that traces its history through Bible-believing churches, the pillar and ground of truth. It's historically accurate. It's theologically accurate. It's Christologically accurate. It uses a method that says these aren't just God's thoughts. They are God's words. It meets all the necessary ingredients. So tonight when you go home and you take your King James Bible and put it up where it goes... When you set it down, recognize this thought. You have a trusted translation.